welcome to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome, everyone, to episode 40. We have two extremely thoughtful and strategic guests with us today. You're going to learn a lot from both their perspective and how they've structured their organizations to best serve both clients and employees. So let's get right to it. Joining us from JMG Financial Group just outside of Chicago is Yanni Gordon. She's Principal, Chief Operating Officer, and Chief Marketing Officer. Yanni's been with the firm almost since its inception 30 years ago. And as you can imagine, she's held numerous roles and has overseen the firm's immense growth to 80 plus employees and almost 4 billion of assets under management. I was introduced to Yanni by our mutual friend, Stacey McKinnon, who most of our listeners know from Morton Wealth. So welcome to the podcast, Yanni. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. And joining us from Gibson Capital in Wexford, Pennsylvania, which is outside of Pittsburgh, is Christine DeMeo. She's Chief Operating Officer and Managing Partner. And like Yanni, Christine has held numerous roles at the firm, spanning 13 years across two different stints with the company. Uh, in addition to advisory firms, she has worked at custodians, fund families, and broker-dealers. So she has an abundance of knowledge about our industry, and I'm very excited to talk with her today. So welcome, Christine, to the COO Roundtable. Thanks so much, Matt. I'm really excited to be here. Great. Well, Yanni, I'm going to start with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about JMG Financial Group? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, uh, we just celebrated 38 years of being incorporated uh, this past Sunday in uh, March. Um, So we're excited to look back on 38 years of being in this business, although the business has evolved over time since I've joined. Uh, We're reaching um, just about 4.7 billion. So hopefully uh, getting to that 5 billion mark sometime in the near future. Um, We've just hired uh, our 86th employee this year. So uh, we have actually the count I was just looking at it. We're up to 35 new hires um, to our team since the beginning of 2020, which during a pandemic, who would have even thought that? I can't can't even believe it myself. So um, experiencing a tremendous amount of growth and also finding talent. Um, You know, we kind of, we work with... um, uh, high net worth individuals. I'd say our specialty is we're working with corporate C-suite executives, and that's because we do uh, extensive tax planning. We're actually in tax season at the moment. We prepare uh, many tax returns. Uh, we were founded by accountants, so it has just kind of come with the territory and the way that we do comprehensive planning. Uh, we have a lot of business owners. I'd say our ideal client are the delegators who just appreciate that we can manage all aspects of their financial lives. So I'd say that we have truly grown organically, which really comes from high client retention and high employee retention. As we have received referrals from existing clients over time, we've been able to promote from within the organization since we have invested in our people and established career paths. I mean, we have positions today that we didn't have certainly five years ago or even a year ago um, because of our growth and our retention. And really in terms of looking at our vision for future growth, I think it's just really to keep improving and evolving as a business. I mean, the challenge of course is to maintain our brand while making sure we, we run efficiently. And I think that that's just been, um, you know, the, the, 
true secret to our growth and, and the way that we've grown organically over time is building upon that foundation. And that really uh, is with our people. Great. And I love the delegators. I, I learned that from Michael Kitsis, the delegators versus the do-it-yourselfers. So um, can totally uh, assimilate with that one for sure. So Christine, give us an overview of Gibson Capital. So we were founded in 1989. We are celebrating our 33rd year. We manage about 2.3 billion in assets for around 197 households across 37 states. Uh, we are only 15 employees. We're currently looking to add two more to our team. Uh, so Yanni, I'm just in complete awe of your hiring trajectory. Uh, I'm going to have to get all sorts of tips from you. Our ideal client, we serve high net worth individuals and institutions all over the U.S. We're not a regional firm here in Pittsburgh. We're a national firm with a fairly large footprint. And I would say that our ideal client would probably be a business owner or retiring professional uh, who has $3 million or more to invest. Our specialty is really people with really complex and unique financial planning issues, uh, somebody who's interested in a collaborative portfolio design process. We don't in-house offer tax or legal services. We're really agnostic on that front which means that we can really work with anybody's team of professionals. So our founder, Roger Gibson, wrote the seminal book, Asset Allocation, Balancing Financial Risk in 1990. And then he spoke about it internationally for about three decades. And we really grew organically as a result of his writing and speaking and his commitment to giving back to the profession. Um, our growth plan for the future is really to continue to do more of the same. Uh, we just want to continue to do exceptional work for exceptional clients and believe that if we're focusing on the right things, the business will follow. Uh, we're really fortunate to have developed some really positive relationships with tax and estate professionals who refer clients to us, and we want to continue to invest in those centers of influence. And our hope for the future is that we can continue to create meaningful career opportunities and secure financial futures for our team. Um, we're a little unusual in that we don't have sales quotas or mandates about growth ratios, and our team is paid purely on salary. So, you know, we really take seriously this commitment to not sacrificing the clients we have today for the ones we could have, you know, hopefully if we're paying attention to the right things, uh, we will continue to be as successful in the future as we have been in the past. Great. Well, I talked about your vast experience across the wealth management spectrum, Christine. So tell us about your career path that led you to where you are today. Sure. Uh, you know, it's funny when I, when I look back on my career path, I'm really conflicted on the one hand, uh, none of this was supposed to happen. This is a huge accident. <laughs> and on the other hand, it all makes perfect sense. Uh, when I was a, a little kid, I loved to make my baby sister and my neighborhood friends play business with me. And I would uh, painstakingly create forms and applications with a ruler and a, a roll of laser printer paper, you know, the ones with the holes on the side. <laughs> <laughs> and it, if I stumbled upon a piece of 
carbon paper or an adding machine with a tape. Those were like the holy grails. So the signs were all there. <laughs> Anytime I recount this story to my colleagues, I point out that I'm literally living my childhood dream. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, not the most typical kid. Um but the road here was fairly bumpy and I've had a lot of detours and pit stops. Um, you know, you talked a bit in my intro about the sorts of places that I've been. I really did sort of break all of the rules about uh, staying put and not being transient. And in fact, when I filled out my application for my Series 7 license, at that time you had to list every place that you'd lived in the prior 10 years and I was mortified to discover when I did that first application that I had moved 17 times <laughs> in the 10 years. But, uh, you know, I, I started my career in finance as a part-time bank teller. And in the corner of the branch that I worked in was a gentleman who sold mutual funds. And it was like he wasn't there every day during the week, but he was there a couple days a week. And I would help him fill out the paperwork and I loved it and I had some aptitude for it. And so he said, hey, you should check out the capital group. And I did. <laughs> and I actually uh, went and moved to Hampton Roads and worked in the uh, transfer agency arm of American Funds in their shareholder services group. And they had this amazing nine-week training program where they taught you everything you needed to to know about their funds. And at the end of every week was a test and it was no joke. Uh, you would pass or fail. And if you failed, your training was done. And by the time we got to the graduation ceremony, about half of our class had been whittled out. Um, but the organiz organization itself was so demanding and structured. It was re really quite impressive. And I I still use some of the things that I learned in that training today. I, you know, I was young and I knew that I wanted to experience living in different cities and different places. Um, so I sort of gave myself this commitment that I would spend at least one year in each role and then I'd reevaluate. <laughs> <laughs> and so my resume was sort of dotted with quite a few 13 month stints. And by the time I showed up at Gibson Capital, I had worked for uh, the largest producer at one of the most successful regional brokerage houses here in Pittsburgh. I had been an institutional relationship administrator serving the RIA group at Federated Funds. I had moved to San Francisco to help Fidelity launch what was uh, one of their first regional institutional wealth services offices. And that pit stop in particular was a really uh, influential one for me. I was working as a senior client service manager, solving problems for about 16 of the biggest and best RAA firms west of the Mississippi. So I had this really big, broad view under the hood to see the way that these firms were structured, what their cultures looked like, how they treated their clients and employees. So by the time I decided I was ready to come back home to Pittsburgh, and by the time I landed back at Gibson Capital, I had moved around enough that I had a really clear picture in my mind of the kind of place that I wanted to be at. And I, I was ready to settle down. You know, home ownership in Northern California was uh, out of the picture for me. And so I kind of 
got lucky. I interviewed at Gibson Capital for a portfolio administrator position. And I have this picture in my mind of a really quiet, small, simple life. And I thought Gibson Capital custodied at Fidelity. I had worked at Fidelity. How hard could this be? It's going to be a total cakewalk. And I got all that wrong too. <laughs> so I grossly underestimated uh, the challenges of working in a firm where the standards of perfectionism and exactitude and continual improvement are part of the fiber. So uh, I did not get a simple life with a neat and tidy work life. But what I did get instead was something altogether different. It was a real opportunity to be a part of this incredible legacy of thought leadership in the profession, of doing the right things for clients, a place where a really positive and progressive culture flourished. And where I could use all the best parts of my skill set in really creative ways to help build a firm where my work life and life are fully integrated. You know, my path was really about gap filling. Uh, I think that's a theme that is probably often heard in the life of a COO. You really find ways to make yourself indispensable and to do the things that need done. Uh, that maybe nobody else is interested in doing or tenacious enough to do. And I spent a lot of years really working like an owner before I was one. And ultimately, I think I just got really lucky. Great. That's a great story. I, it's funny because I always joke, nobody grows up dreaming to be a COO of an RIA, but uh, you, you almost did. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great story. Thank you. Well, Yanni, I don't know if we've ever had a chief marketing officer on the podcast in addition to your COO duty. So, so talk to us about all the different roles you've held as GMG has grown over the years and what your role is today. Yeah. So I have to kind of smile as I'm listening to Christine's story because um, I also used to pretend working business and also being a teacher. Um, my younger sister was my student, and I <laughs> so maybe that's a common thread. But um, in addition, I'm kind of laughing too, Christine, because I'm wondering how many people in the audience uh, know what carbon paper is, because right. I do. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, we. I sort of dated myself, didn't I? I know. <laughs> ah, they can all Google it and look it up. <laughs> Um, but I mean, I, I was also very fortunate. I mean, I joined the firm started in, in 84. I joined in 86. Um, when I joined, there was 13 employees at the firm. Um, I, I've been uh, very lucky to have so many careers at the firm as the firm has evolved. I mean, back in the early 80s, there really was no financial planning industry. It was really insurance sales. Um, and, you know, high commission uh, brokerage firms. Uh, and, and I, you know, my dad is a CPA. Uh, he's also a professor. My mom was a pharmacist. I'm also a Korean immigrant, um, you know, immigrated this country to this country when I was very young. And so growing up in my culture, it was either Yanni be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, and in my case, uh, marry one. And, and I didn't. <laughs> I didn't do any of those things, but that's all I knew. And so I actually did not like accounting. My dad, uh, he actually said, this is your major and I didn't like it. And I switched majors. 
um, to communications and I minored in English and uh, with an emphasis on organizational behavior. And it's so funny because today um, I use more of that in my role. And so it's just kind of setting, I guess, the foundation for my future. But uh, when I graduated from college, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. And I went to a, a college fair being very naive and I got um, sucked into a job called financial planning. And I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. And what I didn't realize at the time, it was insurance sales. And so I showed up and we were in a classroom and we had to learn, uh, teach, uh, you know, uh, learning how to get our licenses and passing all the exams. And then the question of make your list of friends and family and we will go sell them uh, universal and whole life policies. Uh, it was awful. And, and I realized I did it for a month and I realized this is not what I want to do. Um, and I was actually considering to go back and get my MBA. Um, just by chance, I ran into uh, my old uh, high school Sunday school teacher. He had just started at JMG and um, had his JD and his CPA. He came from a big accounting firm and we were talking and, and he said, how about you consider working at our firm? And I, and I said, I don't know. I, I was just so gun shy at the time. So he said, well, let's do this. I'll give you some projects and you can go uh, to, to my house and I'll leave you a tape recorder, Wall Street Journal, which I'd never read before. Um, and his wife, he also, I should also say that uh, he was also Korean and I, you know, knowing him through church and knowing his wife and his wife is expecting their first child uh, also. And so he didn't pay me. And he said, why don't you do this for a, a couple of weeks and see what you think? So he left me with this little computer and I had to figure out Lotus one, two, three at the time for, for those listeners out there that was pre-Excel mm -hmm. and, uh, and reading the Wall Street Journal, looking up stock prices and reading a, a book on investments uh, terminology. So I did that for a while and I said, okay, this sounds, this sounds okay. I'll give it a try. What I didn't realize until later is that he was just really trying to prepare me and trying to give me a little confidence because uh, I was new, I was very young uh, to the staff of just 13 people in the minority. Um, and, and so that's what he did. And I learned a lot from that. And so to this day, that's why I spend a lot of time um, preparing candidates and letting them know, being very transparent about what this job is like. So that when somebody joins us, there's no surprise in terms of what they will be doing. And so from that beginning, that was the beginning for me. I, I learned whatever I could, um, even things that, even learning how to prepare a tax return. I didn't even know what a 1040 was. And, and so I, I just took the approach of, okay, just I will learn what I can and I will be a sponge and learn from everybody. And so to Christine's point, you kind of learn everything. And, and then um, as opportunities arise, I was given that chance. Uh, I have a knack for training. So then I started to train other people. I organized staff meetings at the very beginning. Uh, and then I started to uh, be given the uh, challenge of hiring people. So 
um, I've been able to do that. And so that has evolved over time. I was the first staff person to be promoted to a client-facing advisor role. And I think that's when leadership realized, hey, we can train our people internally and develop them uh, in-house. And then as clients get referred to us, we can promote from within. And, and that's really how uh, we have grown over time. And so I was able to work on the career pathing. And, um, and then what happened was uh, I had two kids. Uh, they were very young at the time. And uh, there was an opportunity in management. And they asked me if I'd be interested. And I really did more so for personal reasons at that time. Uh, that was, you know, over 20 years ago, there was no internet, no, no fancy cell phones that we could work remotely. I had to be in the office. And I knew also that I didn't want to give up uh, working uh, because I knew the kids would be uh, growing up and leaving the house and I would want to maintain my career. Now they're 29 and 25 today. And uh, they know exactly what I've I'm doing. And I've always included them in my career as well. So I think that's another lesson learned for all of you working moms out there to include the kids in, in what you do so that they can be part of your career. And, and I think in hindsight, that was the best decision for me personally, because I, I'm in a very unique position because I, I, I know what it's like to be a client facing advisor. In fact, I still know my clients today over 35 years. And um, I also know what it's like to be a support position, learning from the ground up and progressing at the firm. And, and so I know what it takes uh, to progress. I know what advisors need. And I think that um, I, I'm very fortunate to be in that position. The marketing officer position is, is somewhat new uh, for, for our firm. And that's just because we have grown uh, just to make sure that we continue to grow. And obviously I know Christine has this challenge too, is finding talent out there. But it's more, I think, for, for me, it's about educating our young people. It's, it's talking to that next generation. And because there are so many different business models out there, and there are so many different career options today. I mean, things that, you know, areas that weren't even in, in existence, compliance, my goodness, operations, what we're talking about today, um, you know, just a client facing business development, marketing initiatives, so many things out there, even the technology. So I think there's so many more opportunities and options, but a lot of times uh, students don't know that, you know, coming out of school, it's an important decision for them. So I, I'm glad to be able to uh, share that lessons learned, uh, if you will, uh, to that next generation. Amazing stories, both of you. That's that's fantastic. So as everyone knows, my goal with this podcast is to highlight the importance of professional management in the RA industry. And I use this platform to showcase the amazingly talented individuals who are running these firms. And you both have reached the pinnacle. You're, you're both owners of your organizations, which unfortunately is a bit rare in our industry. Most RIAs, and, and Yanni, you did say you have some client relationships, but most RIAs reserve ownership strictly for advisors and don't even allow that opportunity for operations folks. So I'll go to Yanni first. Can you tell us how you've achieved that and what advice you can share on how we can promote more RIA ownership for non-revenue producing roles? Oh, absolutely. I will absolutely love <laughs> to talk about that. I'll also say, you know, currently we have 17 owners who are all employees of the firm. Four of us are non-revenue producing wow. um, employees and owners. And I think that's wonderful. 
that our firm recognizes that. I mean, I think if you look at leadership, you know, there's usually a visionary and then somebody who has to execute and that falls under the operations. At some point, it's, it, it is the same person in the very beginning, but then that person's going to have to make a decision as the organization grows. You know, they kind of come to a crossroads. Am I going to work on clients on the business development side or am I going to work on the business on the operations side? So um, I think that's the one, you know, that's a big decision uh, early on with an organization. You know, a wise person once told me that a business is like a three-legged stool. You know, you have purpose, you need people, and you need to have structure. And as one changes, the others have to, too, to keep that stool even. And, and so I always challenge employees uh, in terms of how do you add value to the firm? And I think leadership needs to recognize that everybody adds value. And so everybody has different personalities. We all communicate differently, you know, but there has to be a respect for one another and that complements one another. And that's so critical in an organization. So yeah, you need to have business developers, you need to have client facing individuals, but you also need a very strong infrastructure to provide that service. And it's a dependent relationship. If you don't have good support and, and that is in you know, under operations, uh, you're not going to have support to service those clients and then the clients are going to leave. They're not going to be happy with their service. So it is a balance. And I think that, you know, um, I always tell, you know, the employees, you want to have an impact on the culture. And so when leadership looks at that, they have, they have to look at the impact of the culture, impact on the business, productive, productivity, then they should be given opportunities for ownership. It just makes all the sense in the world. And because again, if you look at that model of the, of the three components to a business, purpose, people, and structure, and they all are dependent on one another. That's why I think it's so important for leadership to recognize that and offer those ownership opportunities to the people in the operations and the non-business, non-revenue facing positions. Here, here. <laughs> so, Christine, you you have an interesting take on the benefits of ownership for practice management folks. So, can you can you share that with us? Yeah, sure. I think you know I share a lot of uh, Yanni's perspective on this. I, I think it is bigger than skill set differences. It's bigger than personality differences. It's really about focus. You want people represented who have dedicated focus to the things that that will keep the firm afloat. And I think, you know, I have to start by confessing that I am the beneficiary of working at a firm where I've not had to convince the leadership of the value of the contributions of the practice management team. Um, that bias was already in place when I got to Gibson Capital. But I can talk about how I think we've maintained that perspective. And I think that at the most basic level, it's really about making visible the work on the non-producing side. Uh, people can't value what they can't see. So it really starts with an openness and transparency about what is the work of the firm. We exist to take care of our clients. That is absolutely true. But the work of the firm is so much bigger than that. 
And I think the last two years have been the perfect representation of why non-revenue producing partners matter. Literally overnight, uh, we had to transform our business structure. That focus on practice management, that dedicated focus that is outside of client focus is really what made that possible for us having to rework every workflow, um, having to reconsider, you know, the ways that our employees are working, the technology that they're using, what happens to paper, uh, what implications are there from a risk perspective. All of these things are perfectly suited to the practice management team. In our firm, we have we have intentionally structured our managing partners as a team of three, uh, our chief compliance officer, our chief investment officer, and myself as COO. And we look at every issue that affects the firm as a triumvirate. And we are there to challenge, advocate, support, hold each other accountable. And our leadership group, the composition likewise mirrors those functional roles And we're really working to make sure everybody can see what is the work of the firm so that we do value it when it's time to make new partnership decisions. And, you know, approaching those conversations and those problems from a place of deep respect and uh, appreciation for what strengths and skills the other people bring to the table is key. I think probably all of us have been in places where there can at times be an adversarial relationship between those segments of the firms. And I think it's really important from the top down to have a different tone about those roles being in partnership with each other. And I think that the last two years have been the the perfect example of why it's so critical for the partnership group to be more broad than simply the client-facing roles. Well, given that you're both in charge of the day-to-day execution and running of the businesses, can you share with us what metrics you're tracking to gauge the health of your organizations? And I'll I'll go to Yanni first on this one. Yeah, I mean... Um, that's always challenging. And I think for us, I mean, we keep track of our time. Uh, you know, maybe that's because our firm was founded by accountants and they're used to keeping timesheets and things, but we still do that today. Uh, we have our own internal uh, timekeeping system. And it's really a good way um, from a management tool also to see where people are spending their time from a training perspective um, to, to see if we need to help help people uh, in time management. I mean, that's really kind of, real, if you think about it, that's what we sell because, you know, we, we don't sell any product. Uh, we're a fee only. And, and so any, any, any given time, a client can also ask, hey, how much time does, does, does your staff work on my stuff? Mm-hmm. And um, from an advisor standpoint in managing um, a set of clients, kind of looking at realization, um, productivity, and that's all about running a business. So I think timekeeping for us has been critical and has been um, a great uh, tool for us to use internally for for so many reasons. Uh, But in addition, 
you know, we, we keep track. We have other things that we do. We have a team new business bonus. And so we, everybody knows about new revenue uh, brought into the firm. And so we also are able to uh, keep track of, you know, sources of that new business um, and also who's working on that new business and which team works on uh, different aspects of the onboarding process for a client. So I think that the time management for us has been really key. And that's just keeping track of our time too. And that's helped us to realize, you know, how much time are we spending on uh, certain administration or even onboarding of clients? And, and is there a way that we can make that more efficient? And so that's kind of then translated into streamlining processes and things like that. So that's kind of, I, I would say that's my, um, how, how, how we would gauge our time. It, it's not easy to do, uh, but we talk to our clients all the time about tra- if, if you can do it and track your time, it, it, it adds so much visibility to where the profitability is in the in the organization, where the efficiencies need to be improved, et cetera. Well, we track all of our time here and turn it into Sandra every every Friday. <laughs> we turn in our we turn in our time for, for how much we spend on each client. So um, I love that you're doing that. Yeah. And we, we tie it to the timing is, uh, you know, every pay period. So mm-hmm. it, it's kind of, it works out really well. And it's one of those early habits that um, everybody knows from the get-go. That's what we do. And we have our timekeeping system. We even have codes for, you know, different things that we do for clients. And, yeah. and so um, it's so helpful. That's great. Well, Christine, what key performance indicators uh, do you keep an eye on? Gosh, you know, there's so much, so much data everywhere. And, you know, I find that really maintaining a curiosity about the data is key for us. Uh, So whether it's budgeting and P&L and, uh, you know, really trying to be balanced in discipline and generosity or client to advisor ratios, uh, the number of assigned relationships for each portfolio administrator. Just on the portfolio administrators alone, you know, we are continually looking at trying to, (laughs) it can't be perfectly scientific, but trying to balance uh, the complexity of relationships across each portfolio administrator. You know, do people have the same number of complex clients and simple clients or clients with similar allocations or you know, we don't want one person to be stuck with all of the private equity reporting or um, all of the manual reporting. Uh, looking at things like the custodial data, you know, we get a monthly scorecard from each custodian and we look at things like NIGO rates. We look at things like uh, where are we choosing not to adopt technology that might make our lives or our clients' lives easier. Uh, We look at data from, uh, you know, we're part of the uh, immigrant family. So we look at data and benchmarking from them. We're looking at things like uh, net new revenue, lost revenue on the HR front. I mean, again, there's just, there's so much to look at. You know, we're evaluating things like uh, how much time of our meeting time is your business versus relationship development. Things like who's consistently working more, uh, to Yanni's point, like, is there, is there someone floundering who needs more support? Mm-hmm. 
we're using tools like uh, there's this new one that we implemented through the pandemic is called Culturora, and it's a way to measure connections across the firm while people are working remotely or in a hybrid environment. And we're trying to identify, is somebody sort of off on an island? Are they showing signs of disengagement? There's just, there's data everywhere to pay attention to. Even just yesterday, uh, last night, I was running a report in ShareFile to try to capture good information about how many clients have been downloading our reports versus downloading our billing invoices. And inevitably, I saw, you know, a handful, like maybe 20 clients who had repeatedly downloaded the same thing two or three or four times. And I thought, oh, man, there's something there. Like, I need to go back (laughs) out. You know, there's something in the data that's telling a bigger story about where people are struggling. And it's just a matter of going back and having time to really unpack and unwind what the story is in the data. But there's certainly so much to pay attention to in the interest of doing better work for our clients and our staff. Well, our listeners have heard me say this many, many times. I believe 75% of the COO's job is tied up in HR. So, Christine, can you talk to us about how you affect the culture at Gibson Capital? Sure. Yeah, I think my predecessor, uh, Brenda Gibson, describes my role as being in charge of all things hearth and home. And that's really how I think about uh, my work and how I should be impacting the culture. It's really my job to create for our, our team and our clients, the kind of professional home where people want to be, where people want to come to work. So I really use every tool in the toolbox, Uh, lots of rites and rituals, celebrations, and, and my favorite maybe, storytelling, helping to make meaning out of our work. I'm responsible for finding ways to make generosity tangible. Uh, finding ways to express gratitude, teamwork, and a commitment to delivering exceptional work. So I really can't take credit for the culture that exists at Gibson Capital. I'm I'm simply the most recent steward of it. Um, but I am responsible for being relentlessly intentional about carrying it forward into the future. And I have to find creative ways to make our values and our principles tangible for our people. And you really ultimately do that by making sure that everything that you do every day walks the walk and is in service to those values and principles. And Yanni, what do you do in your role as COO to shape the culture at JMG? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in my career, I've been very fortunate and privileged to have hired close to 80% of our existing employees. Um, and, and so again, speaking to our high retention, um, and I think that, you know, if you think about it, culture is really the fabric of an organization and it takes time to build every thread, the thread by thread. So I kind of, I view the COO as really the glue that holds an organization together. Um, if you think about the approach it's really looking at the employees as your clients. That's how I I have shifted from, you know, being client serving uh, to clients to also now the employees are are my clients. And I think being very transparent is important. Um, Spending time up front. And and so to your point, Matt, about the COO being tied in HR, I mean, that is the first impression 
that candidates you know, get of our organization. So I'd rather spend the time up front. I talk to every new candidate as an introductory call because I think it's very important that they understand our culture from the, from the very beginning. Uh, sometimes it's a fit and sometimes it isn't. And, and so I, I respect that. And actually sometimes when it's not, I'll, I'll help the person decide maybe which direction they should go. So um, I think that's just really important in just in general, managing expectations. The important thing I'd say too is consistency. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to be consistent across the board. And that's why when you build culture over time, and as I look back you know, on my med- mentors who have literally uh, seen me grow up and now they're retired and now they're our clients, and now I see the kids I hired 20 some years ago, grow up, get married, have kids, and now becoming my partners. Uh, what, a, what a special cycle that is. And, and that takes time, uh, but it's also consistency throughout. Uh, and, and also, you know, teaching generations um, behind you um, about that culture and, and really becoming that fabric of the organization to hold it together. Great. Well, we've talked about the health of the organization. We've also talked about the culture of the organization. Now, now let's move into client service. So Christine, I'll go to you first on this one. Can you tell us how you've structured the firm to ensure a consistent client experience? Sure. Yeah, we philosophically, we are, we are a no silo firm. So what I mean by that is uh, we really believe that Uh, It's a more rewarding and fulfilling career to have our operations team doing a much broader range of responsibilities than in firms where there may be, say, a new accounts group or a cashiering group. So it's a really big, meaty, challenging role for anybody in our ops team. And they are charged with working with every advisor in the firm. So there's no team for this advisor or team for that advisor. And we've sort of squarely put our regulatory focus at the center of that web. And it has allowed us to really create a system of gatekeeping where our operations team is empowered to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't think this is right or to question or challenge or hold lines where we think it's very important from a risk mitigation perspective. And also to make consistent one really high service experience for our clients. You know, we we talk about the fact that we're not in the business of making widgets. Uh, We're really trying to create fully empowered teams where they are drawing connections between Uh, the types of work that they're doing, and they're using that to cross the advisors. So they're able to say, hey, Keith, you may not have seen this yet, but Chad and I just did this for this client, and you may want to consider this solution as well. It has allowed us to, even as a a small 16-person firm, to create really uh, rewarding careers over a long time period for people. So that's what's worked for us. And Yanni, how have you approached the decision to either centralize operations or to work in individual teams from a client service perspective? 
Yeah, so I think we kind of have a, a great combination of both. Uh, when we have employees join us, they all go through the same training. They, they learn about each department, they learn about the positions, all of the positions, and they all learn together. So they have to learn our systems, obviously our CRM, all the tools that we use internally. Uh, and, then, and then for us, we've found that because we're such a highly um, personal service uh, relationship to our clients, having a consistent support from a client's perspective is, is why we do have teams assigned to groups of clients. However, internally, though, we have centralized different um, operational things. And, and so I think that has just come about because of the growth of our firm and the numbers that we have and the number of employees that we have. Years ago, uh, you know, all the staff people, I mean, myself included, I, you know, I did everything. I, I did the forms. Mm -hmm. I did, you know, do the, the uh, meeting preparation. Sometimes I'm talking to the client. Sometimes I'm, you know, scheduling meetings and so on, which is a great learning. But then just obviously as time goes on and you grow, you can only handle so much. So only recently, a, a couple of years ago, really is when we, we decided we need to really centralize some of those operational things um, that would be more efficient from us in terms of running our business. So centralizing kind of the, um, you know, we, we custody with Charles Schwab. So we have our uh, internal investment administration department. I mean, they're kind of the liaison with our Schwab team. It uh, doesn't mean that our uh, client service coordinators don't know all the forms that need to be, you know, completed. They also, you know, tr um, communicate with our Schwab representatives too. But but this way, our teams have um, a, a resource internally, and so we have found that as we have grown, it's just become much more efficient in terms of managing a business. Yet we still have that personalized service that our clients know who, who they go to um, if they have a question. And, our, and because of our high retention, our support teams know our clients very well. And, and so for us, it's just been a great combination of both. So we're recording this interview. It's, it's late March of 2022. And it, it feels like the country is shifting now from let's just make it through the pandemic to this is the new normal and it's the way we're going to be doing business moving forward. So Yanni, long-term, what are your thoughts on in-office versus remote work? What, what have you done? What have you determined will work best for your employees and your clients? Yeah, well, I'm really proud to say when we had to go shelter in place in the beginning of, it was March of 2020, uh, our clients didn't even know <laughs> that we had to go shelter in place and that we were all working remotely. So I think that's a testament to the client service um, that we provide. But then of course, you know, uh, from a management standpoint, what do we do? We asked our employees, hey, what would you guys like to do? What would be ideal for you? And give us some feedback. And really the consensus was a hybrid schedule would, would work great. So we actually went to an official hybrid schedule last summer. And, and, but, but the thing is, it has, it has to be planned. It's, it's very intentional and, and it's, and everybody knows what the expectations are 12 months out. And so I think that's important that you get input from everybody, but then also having a plan. 
And, and we're in a relationship business. And I think the key component is that people recognize that, that, you know, it's important, you're missing out on the in-person learning, those impromptu discussions that you might have with one of your peers <clears throat> or colleagues, and, and also when clients come into the office. So it, it's been a great um, shift for us in terms of understanding and realizing that employees can be very productive uh, working remotely, but also they also understand the importance of being in person together. And so I think that just translates into excellent client service to excellent teamwork. And, and so this hybrid schedule is such that everybody has their scheduled days. And so it flip-flops so that it's, it's balanced. Um, but we have it where people are in the office five consecutive business days, but there's a weekend and, you know, to, to break that up. Mm -hmm. But then it also, um, you know, they take turns in terms of how many days of the week in the office, but it turns out to be five consecutive business days so that it's a consistent group. And, and it's intentional in terms of who's in together so that uh, they, they can have those in-person meetings, um, you know, while they're in the office. And the other part of it is too, it, it's not a uh, so flexible that if I'm scheduled to be in today, but I just don't feel like it, mm -hmm. um, I can't do that. I have, I have to be in. That's, that's the expectation of this hybrid schedule. And everybody respects that. And because of that, it's worked out very well. I mean, I cannot see us going back to being um, full 100% in the office. However, I think people, it's the communication that leadership needs to make to the rest of the firm, also getting input. And it's, it's worked out really well for us. It's been, it's been very well received. Like you said, it's got to be very intentional. I think that's a, the, the the key there. Yeah. And you guys have definitely thought through the different nuances of it. So, Christine, how are you structuring the firm to balance in-person versus remote works to ensure everyone is is on the same page? You're all rowing in the same direction, et cetera. Yeah, it's likewise. It's been a lot of talking to our people. Over the last two years, we have done more surveying of our people probably than we've ever done. <laughs> um, we've really focused our attention on making sure that whatever we're choosing to do, it's allowing us to maintain the same high standards that we did when we were all physically working in the same office together while balancing people's you know, deeply personal feelings and concerns about their health and their preferences about what they see and know now about how they work best. I mean, there's no questioning. It's been a, this has been such a transformative time. Uh, we certainly, nobody could have predicted this situation, but there's no denying that, you know, the pandemic has and will continue to transform our field. We know we're not going back to the, the before times. Mm -hmm. So the trick now is for us to really pay attention to what we're learning about how our work lives have improved and folding in the things that we do think we lose by not being together. Uh, so, you know, I, we can see things like our people tend now to work earlier, uh, start work earlier because they're not commuting. Uh, now that everybody is fully equipped at home, they do tend to work more on the weekends or in the evening. Uh, you know, it's not unusual to see people log back on at nine o'clock. Uh, our sick time 
is lower because I think people just feel more inclined. If they're not feeling well, they might push more because they can, you know, do it on the couch. Um, And then, you know, the flip side for us has been that onboarding is unquestionably more difficult. Uh, Teaching and training is is harder when you're not uh, shoulder to shoulder with your new hires. And you do, maintaining culture requires much more uh, intentionality. And uh, without the opportunity to observe each other, things like providing performance review feedback is more difficult. So it's really for us a matter of striking the right balance between all of these competing uh, objectives and maintaining what is positive. So we have chosen also to move forward in a hybrid way. Uh, We actually have added uh, office space to, uh, we've added one additional suite to our office space, which is being renovated as we speak. So, you know, this additional space will give us room to grow and to accommodate the staff that we have now when we are back and Uh, fully implementing the hybrid environment. So we're anticipating that the renovation should be done hopefully in May, at which point we will call everyone back to the office two full days each week. One of them will be a required day, which is our all hands day, which is Thursday. And then the other day they can choose which day they would like to be. Uh, But again, as Yanni describes, it won't be a, you don't get to decide on Tuesday if Tuesday (laughs) or not. (laughs) It'll be a published schedule so that we do have opportunities for people to overlap. And so that we have at least one full day every week where everybody is together. And the rest of the week, people can choose where they think they do their work best. Whether it's from home or in the office, they can choose. And we're going to see how that goes. Um, We will continue to leverage technology that we've put in place to try to keep people connected. So I expect that we'll continue to use Slack, we'll continue to use Teams, we'll continue to use things like Culture Aura. And, you know, we're going to see what this new phase teaches us. Well, I cannot thank you both enough for sharing your stories and your experience with us today. As I, as I said at the outset of this conversation, you both have approached your roles in a thoughtful manner. You're both running incredibly successful businesses. So we've all learned a ton from you both today. So Yanni and Christine, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having us, Matt. It was really a pleasure. It was so much fun. Thank you so much. Great. Well, that is a wrap on episode 40, everybody. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. 